90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Starting to feel that beginning of the semester crunch happening. So yeah, that's hitting me, but that's okay. That's okay. Yep. And <laughs> I've got some travel coming up, several trips, uh, which is good timing because we're finally ready to start the second part of our solar system series. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. So we're going to cover the giant gas planets and Pluto because, yes, we have to do that, right? Um, <laughs> oh, and yeah. We've been talking to some amazing people. Uh, I don't even know if I could pick my favorite interview. We've had so much fun doing this series. It's true, and it's my favorite part of doing a podcast is it's an excuse to just email somebody and say, hi, you're interesting. Let's talk for an hour. I know, and it's so... It, I will tell you, John, that doing this has made me very much more aware of answering my emails because I feel like I sent out so many emails that just didn't get answered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can't help because I'm human. I can't help feeling like, oh, I can't believe we were slighted by this person. But then we talk to someone who knows that person. They're like, oh, they're really busy or they're gone for this reason or whatever. And I'm like, man, I'm really going to answer my emails more often because just a, just a simple, hey, I don't have time for this, but thanks for the invite. You know, that would... So that's what I've learned besides all the cool stuff about the outer planets. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that I feel like is hand wavy in, uh, you know, our under undergraduate or elementary education about the outer planets because we didn't know a lot about them when we were going through undergraduate yes. or elementary. Yes, it's absolutely true. And they're like, here's this planet. It's this color. It's got this one storm on it. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, I'm talking about Jupiter, which we're going to talk about today. Um, and it's so much more than that. <laughs> it's true. And you, know, you always say, oh, Saturn's the one with the rings. No, they all have rings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. I remember walking around as a little elementary school kid telling people that, though, because I, like everybody else, wanted to be an astronaut as well. And I'm like, no, they all have rings. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, it's uh, it's pretty interesting because this week Mars was uh, as close and as bright as it's been since sometime in the early 2000s. And the other night, uh, I walked outside with my wife and we were able to naked eye see Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn all in yeah. the sky at once. Yes. And after doing the series, it was just a really interesting thing to sit there and look at I talk about. Agree. Um, I have gotten out my Google Sky Map so much more in the last couple of weeks than I have in the last six months, I think. Um, and even, yeah, last night, it was last night with Mars. It was unbelievably bright. It really was. Yeah. I was like, man, is that a plane coming in? Nope, not a plane. That's a planet. So it was really cool. And you're right. It's just further reminded me how neat all the physics is out here because obviously these next several shows are very meteorology heavy since you know there's not really many rocks on the gas giants it's true <laughs> uh, and but we are going to start out with a very meteorologically interesting planet right uh, yeah, so obviously that big red spot, that's Jupiter. That's what we're going to be talking about. And it's going away, guys. Spoiler alert. Uh, 
<laughs> but there's a lot more going on in the atmosphere. And because of the Juno missions, we know so much more about this planet. Well, this week, we're excited to be talking to Dr. Fran Baganel of the University of Colorado Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics. Hi, Fran. Welcome to the show. Fun to be here. <laughs> so I was really excited when I found some of your research because I am a paleomagnetist, but you are not a geologist, which is okay, because we're here to talk about Jupiter, which we don't know anything about the geology anyway, right? Indeed. Uh, you know, I started off very interested in uh, why the Earth's magnetic field changed and whether or not there was a way in which you could measure through a reversal. So um, we have some interests in common. Uh, excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right up my alley for sure. Um, I guess, uh, how did you get started in this? Uh, we've found through our research on the uh, the solar system here, people have a very circuitous pathway to getting to what planet they're working on. Yes, to some extent that's true. But in my case, um, I came over to the United States to start graduate school. And in fact, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study, but I ended up going to MIT at a time when they were about to start with the Voyager mission, so before launch of Voyager. And somebody said to me, oh, they're looking for someone who does space physics over there in the Center for Space Research. And I just got involved at the early stages of the mission to uh, Jupiter that later Saturn, then Uranus and Neptune. So um, that's sort of how I got involved. So how would you classify yourself and your and your work? Did you come for grad school in physics or in astronomy or what, what was your uh, how do you describe what you do? <laughs> well, what I was originally interested in, believe it or not, was indeed to measure, find a way to see if you could work out how the Earth's magnetic field had changed and and uh, measure through a reversal. I had this nutty idea. I was a cave researcher. I was interested in cave, caving, exploring caves. And I heard that there was a way in which you could use stalactites to measure through uh, a reversal. And so I thought it'd be really cool to go to caves all over the world and find uh, through a particular reversal if you were able to measure uh, through the reversal. And the reason is that the deposits of a stalagmite is about the right time frame for a reversal. Of course, it's quite a bigger project than I had in my mind at the age. But, you know, you're young, you're innocent, <laughs> you have these great ideas. Anyway, they soon sort of, um, they didn't scoff and laugh at me when I came up with this idea. Um, and I did some initial research on the Earth before um, getting uh, excited to go off and work on, on Jupiter. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's something that gets done all the time now is looking at these stalagmites to find reversals. Um, so, yeah, that's excellent. But when we talk about the physics of, you know, the magnetic field, it, they're a lot different planet to planet. I mean, we don't even understand ours hardly at all. So what's interesting about the Juno mission to Jupiter is that uh, we don't have to worry about remnant magnetization, the magnetization <laughs> of rocks that happens you know, when you have an eruption and the magnetic field, the, the magnetic field of that particular time gets frozen into the rock. And so that's why we get the stripes through the uh, mid-Atlantic um, separation. You get the um, alternating um, uh, magnetic fields of the Earth uh, as the plate tectonics moves the plates around. Now, with the Earth, 
um, you've got a strong remnant magnetization that causes the high order magnetic field to be totally controlled by this remnant magnetization of rocks. Mm -hmm. If you go to Jupiter, it doesn't have a rocky surface. There are no rocks to speak of. And so that means that if you look at more and more detail, higher and higher resolution in spatial scales, you can measure the high order magnetic field of the dynamo because there's no remnant magnetization. And so that's going to be really interesting with Juno to be able to measure the magnetic field in uh, detail. We're going to have, we hope, 32 orbits, so 32 stripes from north to south, and that will allow us a resolution of about, um, you know, on the order of 11 degrees or so uh, separation. So that should allow us to measure the high order magnetic field. One person's noise is another person's signal, obviously. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So when we think about the magnetic field on Earth, we talk about the geodynamo and uh, these large liquid and solid interactions that happen. Where would a magnetic field on Jupiter come from? What do we think is forming it? So on the Earth, indeed, the dynamo is between the solid inner core and the, liqu uh, the liquid outer core. Uh, that liquid outer core is where, uh, so that's what, I don't know, what, 40% of the radius of the Earth? I think that's about the right size. Is that right? Yep. Um, yeah. And so that's where the Earth's dynamo is produced in liquid metal. Uh, now, when we go to Jupiter, we don't have liquid metal. What we have is hydrogen. And when you compress hydrogen to more than, say, 2.5 million bars, so that's uh, two and a half million times the pressure that we're breathing, gas we're breathing, uh, hydrogen turns into a, a plasma. That is the electrons and the protons in the hydrogen break apart. And so you have separate positive negative charges able to move around. And so that means that you have hydrogen that is liquid and metallic. You have a source of heat inside that can turn over and convect this liquid material around. And you have a little bit of rotation, which helps to um, turn that outward motion into sideways motion. And so you have a dynamo. And this generates a really strong magnetic field. Now, the region at Jupiter, Jupiter, of course, is 10 times the size of the Earth. So a big planet. Uh, the region that we think this liquid metallic hydrogen is in Jupiter goes out to something like 90% of the radius. So you have a huge volume of material with this liquid metallic hydrogen that is generating a very strong magnetic field. Wow. <laughs> um, so what is, if we say strong magnetic field, how does it compare to the intensity of Earth's magnetic field? So on the surface, we have a field. Now, the trouble is with magnetic fields, as you probably know, people <laughs> tend to use all sorts of different units. And yes. they all <laughs> right? So if we use a convenient one, which is half a Gauss, which is what the Earth is roughly, okay. then we go to Jupiter, it's like 20 Gauss. Okay. okay, so it's about 40 times stronger than the Earth on the surface. But that's the surface, the outermost layer. Now, because the um, Jupiter is so much bigger, and so the radius is 10 times bigger, that means that the actual strength of the magnetic field, if you were to use some normalized units of um, a total dynamo strength, like comparing it with a little bar magnet, then um, it's about uh, 40,000 times stronger than the Earth's, more or less, okay? That sort of level. 
Wow. So that's uh, as a geophysicist, I normally think in nanotesla. So I had to do right. a little bit of conversion <laughs> right. there. Right. But yeah, so that's a yeah. that's really strong. How much of this magnetic field, or do we know, is a, a true dipole for you know the Earth? Okay. We have a large percent right. dipole field. Right. The percent dipole is pretty much the same for Jupiter and the Earth. Uh, not for Saturn, interestingly enough. Saturn is extremely dipolar and strictly aligned with the spin axis, which is a little different. We can come back to that later. But with Jupiter, it's tilted by about 10 degrees, and the non-dipolar components are more or less the same um, between the Earth and Jupiter, more or less. Yeah. Wow. So, so for people not listening, like 90% of Earth's magnetic field can be described as a dipole at this point in time. So in terms of that, uh, the outer 10% of the radius where we don't have this uh, plasma and metallic hydrogen, what do we know about the atmosphere there? Right. So we know what the surface is like. Right. Everybody's seen the movies of Jupiter with all the swirling clouds and stuff like that, which is totally cool. <laughs> uh, so the outermost layer is ammonia clouds, not water, ammonia and then below that we have ammonia hydrosulfides, ammonia mixed with hydrogen with sulfur. And then below that again, we have water clouds. At least that's what we think. We're pretty sure because water's pretty abundant. That's where they should be. Now, what we're doing with Juno is for the first time we're able to use microwaves to look below the um, magnetic field. Sorry, below the cloud layer, not the magnetic field, below the, the uh, cloud layer to see what it's like underneath uh, inside. And what we're finding there is um, that indeed uh, this convecting, it's not uniform. Uh, it seems as if the ammonia is convecting in large cells. Uh, and so this pattern that you see on the surface of east and west belts and zones, those stripes you see with a small telescope, seem to persist quite deep. In fact, for about 3,000 kilometers down, so a long way down, um, where you see this convecting pattern and these stripes, east and west belts and zones. So are those analogous to the Hadley and Farrell cells of Earth? In, in some ways, but there's multiple of them, right? Instead of just one and two cells, you've got multiple cells um, because you've got multiple stripes um, going east and west. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it seems like everything's just a little bit scaled up then from Earth, but it's not, I mean, it is different, but never mind. Um, yeah, it's scaled up. That's right. It's scaled up. But the big difference is, again, this issue of not having a rocky surface. Yeah. And so not having oceans, not having continents, you don't have the effects of... Um, the deflection of the flows and the coupling between the oceans and the atmosphere, uh, deflection by mountain ranges and so on and so forth, and, and then the effects of, of coupling to the, the effects of water underneath. Um, you do have the effect of latent heat and the clouds evaporation and condensation and so on, and the effect of exchange of heat between liquid and gas phases and that's a lot of what is driving the atmospheric turbulence, we think, when you look at Jupiter. Um, but the big differences are in, uh, first of all, Jupiter is rotating every 10 hours, not 24 hours. So, and it's 10 times bigger. So the effect of that rapid rotation means rotation really dominates 
the atmospheric dynamics of Jupiter, much more so than Earth, and um, which is why you have so many multiple uh, east and west belts and zones. Um, so you have more of those cells. The higher the rotation, the more numbers of cells that you get. Yeah, it would take a pretty significant pressure gradient to try to balance that <laughs> rotational deflection. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got the idea. Yeah. Um, so what was it like setting up, you know, the Juno mission? And what are you, you just talked about some of the things that we've learned about the atmospheric dynamics. But what else is Juno telling us about Jupiter? Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, let's start at the interior because that's kind of cool. Um, we are really interested in knowing whether or not the sort of textbook view where you have a little core, they have an outer layer, and then you have a layer of hydrogen, and then you have another layer. And, you know, this classic textbook view has these distinct different layers, usually different colors in the textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, what we're finding from the gravity observations, so we use the usual technique we use at planets where you send a spacecraft in orbit around the planet, you measure the perturbation in the motion of the spacecraft due to the distribution of mass inside the planet that gives you the distribution of gravity that you can, you can, you measure the gravitational the complexity of the gravitational magnetic field that tells you the distribution of mass inside. So we've done this for for things like using Grail to do that for the moon and other spacecraft. So at Jupiter, what we're learning with the Juno spacecraft is that uh, it's not quite the textbook view that the um, small amount of um, mass that's inside. So we think something like 15 to 20 Earth masses of uh, heavy elements that are inside the, the, the core onto which the hydrogen was pulled in uh, at the center. Uh, but we, and we think that rather than having uh, water or rocks as molecules, that those molecules have been broken up at the very high pressures and temperatures at the center of Jupiter to make individual atoms. So you then have the, um, the oxygen, the iron, the calcium, the uh, sulfur, and sort of those heavier elements, heavier than hydrogen, mixed in with the hydrogen deep down. And so then the core is in a distinct separate sort of uh, layer deep down, but more mixed in with the hydrogen and spreading out up to, say, 40% of the radius. And so it's a lot more um, messier, if you like, or evolved. So we still think that Jupiter formed out beyond the snow line of the solar system, of the, the solar nebula, with the rocks and metals forming the rocky planets inside, you know, and then once you move out and it's colder, then ice can form and solidify to form big uh, ice balls. And once those ice balls get to be about 20 times the mass of the Earth, you pull in the hydrogen to make the gas giants. So that's been the standard formula for how we make gas giant planets. And I don't think that's gone away as a theory of how we make gas giants. It's just that we know that with Jupiter, it evolved after that with the uh, material inside dissolving into the hydrogen. So even though it's a, a dense core, we're not talking about a, a solid body. Right. Uh, you know, once you get down to pressures that are 50 million bars, um, 
<laughs> and temperatures that are, you know, uh, 20,000 Kelvin. You know, the equation of state gets a little messy. <laughs> and, you know, in fact, we don't, we don't have measurements of the equation of state of those temperatures and, temperatures and pressures. Yeah. We have to... You know, we have to rely on quantum mechanical models. Or I should really say them with German accent. You know, quantum mechanical models. Because, <laughs> you know, it tends to be Germans who do this stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is really, I guess I just always somewhere deep down thought that there was a little bitty rocky core sitting in the middle down there. This is really, really sad because it's not stuff I have you know, I actually in- a thought. So it's out, mm. outside our, yeah. our our geological experience, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> this is kind of yeah, it's kind of mind blowing, really. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and so, Fran, as a as a surface geologist, I, I'm used to doing gravitational surveys, and you know, take my little gravimeter out and put it on a stand. And you <laughs> talked about measuring the uh, the gravity by looking at orbital perturbations of the spacecraft. And conceptually, that makes sense. And we've talked about some of the the gravity missions that have gone around Earth before. But when you have a spacecraft at Jupiter, how do you measure those orbital perturbations? Is it purely from an inertial measurement unit or is it radar? No, no, no. You use Doppler. You use Doppler Doppler shift. So you measure the frequency transmitted by the spacecraft to the deep space network very accurately. And you measure, actually, it helps to have two different frequencies. And so you can use that to calibrate. And then you measure the small Doppler shift. So it's, you know, it's like the police measuring the speeding car. You're measuring um, radio Doppler shift um, uh, associated, in the case of the police, bouncing the radar off your speeding car. Uh, In the case of Jupiter, we're measuring the speed of Jupiter, not sorry, the speed of Juno going around Jupiter um, by measuring the Doppler shift of the signal between Juno and the deep space network. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that that makes sense, but it's not a way I would have yeah, uh, right. thought of to do it. Yeah. Right. So that's how we do it with, with um, to some extent, the way GRACE works for the Earth is to send signals between two different spacecraft, but it's doing the same sort of thing. It's measuring the Doppler shift associated with motion, relative motion, um, and that then gives you, uh, with a bit of work, the uh, the gravity field, which you then turn into a distribution of mass. Okay, so I'm still stuck on this whole thing that Jupiter doesn't even seem like a planet, right? Um, oh, because so, it doesn't have a rocky surface? Yes, like, to me, like, that's everything to me. I yeah, don't but wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I mean, you know, you've got, uh, if you have the, the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, something like 99% of the mass of the planets. So, I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fine. <laughs> Um, so earlier you said something about how Saturn is almost a perfect dipole, and so I have to I have to hear about this because I didn't know. Yeah, this. so this this came up at the time of Voyager back in the eighties, and um, there's a lot of question about why could it be so aligned because there is a theory in in dynamo theory uh, that tells you that you can't have a perfectly aligned symmetric uh, magnetic field that can't be right. generated by a dipole. That's a sort of mathematical formula. And um, but so what people realized with um, Saturn, Saturn is merely 100 
of masses, not 320 of masses. <laughs> and so um, uh, the the dynamo region where you, hydrogen becomes metallic is much deeper. So it's only sort of 50% of the radius. And so um, down there, uh, you've got on the outside, the idea is that maybe on the outside of li liquid metallic hydrogen, you may have, have something that isn't quite conducting. It's a little bit conductive, a little bit resistive that is flowing relative to the dynamo. And it moves around because the rotation is, again, 10-hour rotation period for Saturn. What that does is it symmetrizes or smears out the non-symmetric components of the magnetic field and takes what could be a non-symmetric dynamo validating the dynamo theory, but then turns it into a symmetric outside magnetic field that is very dipolar and, and aligned very rigorously with the spin axis. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's basically the assumption we have in PMAG, that is, if you're averaging Earth's, you know, magnetic field over a long enough time, you make it essentially a perfect dipole. So yeah, now Same it's thing. actually working yeah. out, yeah, on Saturn. Okay, I like that. That's that seems good. Um, so well, it on, seems like a pretty delicate balance to have uh, found, but it yeah, an interesting yeah yeah yeah. Huh. That was real interesting. Um, so I know on Saturn we see a lot of these um, auroras and all that fancy stuff due to their the cool hexagonal uh, aurora up in the top and the magnetic field there. I mean we see this stuff on Jupiter too, right? Yeah, so we see the auroras. We've been seeing them um, from Earth, either Earth telescopes like Hubble and so on, mostly in the UV, ultraviolet light. Um, but with Juno, we're flying over the top for the first time. So with Juno, we fly over the top. We measure the aurora, look at the aurora in, in UV and infrared light, and then we uh, measure the charged particles that are flowing along the magnetic field into the planet to cause the aurora. So for the first time, we're actually able to test our ideas of auroral mechanisms. What is the mechanisms that excite the particles, accelerate them into the atmosphere to make the atmosphere glow and produce the aurora? And um, Juno's been able to make those measurements and uh, been continuing to monitor the aurora from this uh, different viewpoint. And, and what might interest you lot, since your geology types <laughs> is that uh, there's a paper out in Science uh, Friday the 6th of July just coming out that shows the aurora associated with the moon EO. So the moon EO, the most volcanically active, if you want geology, just you just want to go to EO. Uh, <laughs> just spewing out volcanoes left, right and centre. And uh, the gases from EO fill up the magnetosphere of Jupiter. The particles of sulfur and oxygen that come out of those sulfur dioxide plumes become broken up and ionized and accelerated to high energies in the magnetosphere. And then those particles, along with the electrons, bombard the atmosphere and make the aurora glow. So um, we're seeing that whole process uh, from the plasma that comes from EO filling up the magnetosphere, generating radio emission, uh, generating ultraviolet glowing. In fact, we can see the, uh, the this torus, this donut of plasma that comes from EO glowing in the UV. Uh, and then 
uh, we see the plasma as it fills out and then finally dumping into the atmosphere. Wow. So uh, other than the, the aurora, one of the things that people often know about and are fascinated by, the, the other big thing on Jupiter that everyone knows about is the Great Red Spot ah. and, and another interesting atmospheric <laughs> phenomena. Yes. Uh, but big. I read that it's going away. This is yes. this is crazy. What's happening? Yeah. There's no rocks so, on Jupiter. The Great yeah. Red Spot's going away. <laughs> yeah. So um so the Great Red Spot has been observed from around the time that we first looked at Jupiter with a telescope, you know, Galileo's time e e epoch. Um, and so the Great Red Spot's been around and it was observed in detail by Voyager back in 1979 um, and monitored since. I mean, astronomers have been looking at this thing for, for, for centuries. And what's been happening is that since Voyager, it has been getting smaller. It's about half the size or... Um, 60% of the size. So instead of being twice the radius, uh, it's actually, instead of being twice the radius of, sorry, twice the diameter of Earth. So you could put two Earths side by side projected onto the Great Red Spot, right? Um, now it's about one and a half or 1.2 times the Earth's size uh, as a Great Red Spot. And if you project forward, it'll disappear in uh, 2050. Okay, wow. so, you know, lifetime. But um, at the same time, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Will it get bigger again? Will it break up? Will it, um, uh, you know, just fade out? You know, we have no idea because we've never seen such a phenomenon before. Um, it, it seems to be a rather isolated storm system. It seems to stick up above the clouds a little bit, the other clouds uh, and below. So it's quite a big, deep um cylindrical cylindrical um uh storm that has just been very persistent and why is it in the southern hemisphere not in the north you know why does it drift around all of these questions we do we don't know so um we've had one flyby with juno where we have been able to make some measurements we want to fly over again and try and see if we can get a good gravity measurement over uh, the Great Red Spot have a have a good measurement of the microwaves that'll tell us about the deep interior. Um, so yeah, we hope to get some more observations with Juno. I can't help but go back to you talking about there's no atmospheric to surface coupling we have to worry about. So it feels to me like these atmospheric models should work quite well on Jupiter, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, they should do. And I'm really excited to talk with some atmospheric dynamicists about what their current thinking is about what we're seeing here. Um, the, 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 you'd think, oh, well, this is really simple. We've just got belts and zones, maybe the old red spot, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but then, you know, you look at the new Juno pictures, the North Pole and the South Pole. We have um, eight vortices around the North Pole, five vortices around the pot, South Pole. These have been persistent for two years. Why is this so different? Saturn, you have a hexagon. Jupiter, we don't have a hexagon. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think we, we, we really don't understand the atmospheric dynamics of these giant planets. There's a lot more going on there than we thought. 
can we tell either from Juno or from this modeling? I mean, these are these latitudinal bands. How much mixing is going on? You know, ah, good question. <laughs> Very good question. So that's that's exactly what we're looking at with the um, microwave instrument, and we know it's not homogeneous. There is some mixing. Um, but the other point is this, and this is why I don't really understand, and I want these guys to explain to me. If you think <laughs> about it, you have clouds associated with the ammonia at the top, and as you have, um, if you have uh, ev evaporation, you need energy to evaporate material, and then you have latent latent heat released when you cool it off and you condense it, and so then you know, you've got heat exchange between the gas and the solid phase or liquid phase of these materials. So you've got the top layer of, of ammonia, you've got ammonia hydrosulfide, and then you've got all this water layer below. So then comes the question, are these different layers coupled? And do is there an interaction between the energy associated with the evaporation and condensation at these different levels? I mean, the guys at NCAR have a hard time dealing with just water on Earth. <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> exactly. <laughs> and sorting out the water is the hardest thing in, in Earth atmospheric models. Uh, am, I, am I not right, John? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and now think about having three layers. So the fact that we don't have a surface does make it a bit easier, but uh, there's plenty of other bits to make it complicated. <laughs> just well, anything to keep the modelers in business, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just thinking about that, the, the different uh, the the different layers are going to have some kind of surface topography and obviously density differences. So maybe you don't have orographic lift, but maybe you have lift of ammonia on a water vapor surface. Oh. All kinds of Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think the great All kinds red of pretty spot. Strange yeah, I think so. And then the great red spot may be a classic example of that. It's like a huge Everest sticking up through. You know, I, I don't know. Was I think it's all cool. Yeah, that's because you see these pictures, and they're generally from quite far away. Uh, so you don't really think about there's a 3D structure to the surface of this planet that it's not just a <laughs> a perfectly round ball of gas right uh, and so to, to to sort that out with atmospheres we do the same as what's done at the earth is to look at different wavelengths and the different wavelengths give you different penetration depths so you look at the visible or the outermost layer you look down at the, the uh, infrared you're looking a little deeper and then you use the microwave to penetrate much much deeper inside and so this sort of multi-layer um, process of trying to do a CAT scan, if you like, of an, a gaseous atmosphere um, requires looking at these different wavelengths to sort out the different layers. So Jupiter's got a lot of really interesting things going on on it, but what can it teach us about the solar system as a whole? Why should people uh, care about investigating the processes on Jupiter? So I think there's uh, there's two sort of very different approaches. One approach is to say the sort of stuff we've been talking about, which is if we think we understand atmospheric dynamics, let's apply it to a very different situation. We think we understand aurora, let's apply it to a very different situation. And so that's a learning experience to test our physics. Uh, um, and do we really understand those fundamental processes? That's one side. 
The other side is this issue of trying to understand the formation of the solar system and the planets, not only of our solar system, but of the thousands of other star systems that have planets around that we're now finding. And many of those are Jupiter-sized and Jupiter-like planets, we think. And so it's sort of pretty fundamental to to understand uh, how solar systems form is to sort of understand what's going on inside Jupiter and um, is it consistent with our theories of solar system formation of giant planets, of condensation of uh, icy core, icy metallic core with uh, hydrogen being pulled in and then evolution of that uh, inner layer mixing in with the hydrogen subsequently. And, um, you know, so we need to... to test these formation ideas that's pretty fundamental for understanding the earth's role and how it formed uh and and or rather the jupiter's role in formation of the earth um you know jupiter played a big role in tossing a lot of stuff around as it was being formed and afterwards so uh you know in may we think that most of the water that we have at earth was made either by jupiter slinging icy material to the Earth uh, later after the formation of the Earth, or Jupiter stirring up the material in the uh, solar nebula, introducing more water and sending condensed material in towards the uh, region where the Earth was forming, mixing it in. And I don't think we we understand yet uh, for the Earth how much of the water was um, uh, produced in the formation phases, maybe the later phases of formation, and uh, kept in the mantle region of the Earth, and how much was delivered later, maybe a heavy bombardment period that we see on the Moon, also delivered water to the Earth. You've got to somehow get that water in there. That's what we're made of. That's what the ocean is. Um, And the timing of that is uh, Jupiter probably played a pretty major role. How much more does Juno have to tell us? It's still going, right? Yep. We've had um, 13 orbits and uh, we hope to keep going for 32. We're, We're authorized by NASA to keep going to 32. And so that'll be into the spring of 2021. And uh, we will get higher um, resolution measurements of the magnetic field, the gravity field, the distribution of uh, water and ammonia, the dynamics of the interior using the microwave, the infrared. We'll get more of those cool pictures with JunoCam, the visible camera that was added on, the, the citizen scientist camera that we're using. Uh, and then we'll be mapping out the magnetosphere. The orbit will be evolving as Jupiter moves around the sun, carrying Juno with it. And that takes Juno down into the tail of the magnetosphere. And we'll see where material gets ejected down this tail, comet-like tail of Jupiter. So we've got a lot more to do. We're about a third of the way through, I think. And one thing that's always interesting to to hear from people that deal with these missions is what your process is like working with the team because there's so many different uh, different scientists that want to get different things or look at different things or repurpose instruments and th- the mission planning is always right. very complicated. Uh, so what's your experience been like on Juno? So this is actually something that Candy Hansen and I are in charge of. That's our, our, our role as chair of the science um, 
planning working group. And um, we, from the beginning, said that the Juno mission, it's a spinning spacecraft. We've got instruments that are designed to make these sort of synoptic observations there. It's all mapping. It's all about mapping, 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 whatever we're trying to make measurements of. And so we have a very simple, we, we proposed, our motto was always keep it simple and safe, the KISS principle. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we, we therefore keep our planning um, pretty simple in terms of uh, what we measure each orbit. And so it's a pretty standardized uh, orbital sequence. This is very different from, say, Cassini, where you had, you know, a bunch of different instruments wanting to look in different directions, and they had to go through huge arguments and process and planning to to decide who looks where and when. And I suspect the Europa Clipper is going to end up with a similarly difficult process. Um, but since we have instruments that are mostly mapping, and we designed the mission um, pretty simply. We're 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 not having too much of a difficulty in terms of coming up the plan uh, of how to to do things. Now there's sometimes difficulties with not having enough data downlink with the DSN being so busy, um, but uh, we've been able to quite amicably divide stuff up and make make things work. Uh, so if there's somebody listening that is interested in getting into planetary science and working on spacecraft missions in their future, what advice would you give them? Well, starting at the youngest age, which is when the people start getting excited by the planets, I have to say that um, from the beginning through to high school, um, you have to stick with your math and physics homework and <laughs> uh, keep that science going. Um, add a bit of chemistry, a bit of biology, a bit of geology when you get the chance. Um, but uh, yes, you have to be able to um, stick with those basic science sciences um, and math to, to get into an undergraduate program where, again, um, it doesn't – if you stick with the basics of um, math and physics and chemistry and geology, uh, you'll have plenty of choice to move in different directions either into the engineering side, where you can get involved in building spacecraft, building instruments, uh, planning and then operating um, missions, or, or into the science side, where, again, you could be involved in designing missions, designing instruments, and then analyzing the data that's obtained. Um, but all of those require uh, math and physical physics background. So um, sticking with the math and physics is the most important. Um, beyond that, you've got to learn to um, think critically about what's going on uh, and uh, learn to work as a team. You definitely, this is not a job for the lone person going off on their own. Uh, you have to work with the team if you're going to make a spacecraft work. So something, Fran, that we've been asking all of our guests, which might be a little bit harder for you working on these gas giants, is if you could travel to Jupiter and live there for a month, and I'll extend this to the satellites as well, uh, where would you go and what would you look at? Well, um, these environments are pretty impossible for humans to go to because of the high radiation environment. Uh, even if you could land on the surface, the radiation environment is horrendous. Right. So, um I uh, don't believe there's anything that humans can do that robots can't do cheaper and better and faster except <laughs> tourism. 
Okay, but if you're asking me what would I do as a tourist? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, I prefer to send robots, but but um, I, I like your answer, but <laughs> right up John's um, alley. But what's what's I mean, the important places to go, and whether you go as a human or you send your robots, all the questions are the same. Um, I think that after Juno, we will want to send more probes into the atmosphere, or we may want to send balloons or um, aerobot, something that would be able to move in the atmosphere and sample different depths, uh, go in and, and, and get the chemistry, the temperature, the pressures, the uh, dynamics of what's going on in the atmosphere. And we might pick a dozen different places that we, we would really want to go and explore the atmosphere of Jupiter. That's one thing. The other thing, of course, is um, the next plan is to send an in a spacecraft to, to Europa, and I haven't even mentioned Europa as the, the most likely place that there could be life underneath the ice in the liquid ocean, the vast liquid ocean that's inside Europa. And so uh, once we've sort of got an idea of the lay of the land and where would be good places to land, uh, sending a lander to Europa to scratch and sniff the surface and find out what that brown gunk is. Is it <laughs> whale poop, perhaps? Who knows? Um, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, would be really cool. Um, I would love to go to Io because I think the most volcanically active object in the solar system is fascinating for the uh, geologist um, to know about these volcanic, these lavas on the surface, the, the gases that come out of the vents, the sulfur dioxide and so on, um, and to try and understand this tidally driven volcanic uh, surface. There are no impact craters. This is a totally fresh surface. The whole of EO turns inside out uh, 40 times in the age of the solar system. So, you know, it's a, a really active place to go. I think that would be really cool, but not particularly easy, I have to admit. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so if uh, listeners want to keep up with your research and the Juno mission, and follow all the exciting things that are happening, how can folks find you and your work on the internet? So um, if you just go to the Juno website, the NASA Juno website, or the JPL Juno website, um, there's a basic information about Juno there. Um, but the Juno Cam, so Juno C-A-M is the instrument that takes all the pictures, and that's the citizen scientist uh, camera, and there's a special website there um, which will allow you to download the pictures uh, whenever you want, you can, as soon as they're, they're available, and then you can play with them on Photoshop, do what you want, do some science, do some art, post them back up again for others to share and enjoy. Um, so I uh, encourage people to uh, get involved with the JunoCam and uh, enjoy all the images that are, are being posted there. I don't know what I'm doing in the next five hours, John. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I just pulled up the website. Yep. <laughs> uh, we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Right. <laughs> well, Fran, thank you for joining us. It's been uh, a lot of fun talking with you. Great. Good. So, Shannon, are you ready to uh, rework some atmospheric dynamics models and <laughs> start figuring <laughs> out where the, the next Great Red Spot's going to be? Yeah, totally. Let's do this. I mean, can't be wrong, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so Jupiter turned out to be a really interesting place, and we are going to uh, continue the space theme 
which it's, it's unusual that our fun papers and topics line up. But we're going to continue talking about space in this week's Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> so I thought that I'd look for a Star Wars paper because outer planets, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you found this on the, uh, the PLOS blog. Oh, exactly. So it's not exactly a fun paper, but it was totally worth doing. So it's if the script for Star Wars The Last Jedi was peer-reviewed. <laughs> By Bill Sullivan. <laughs> so amazing. Um, and basically, yeah, so The Last Jedi came out, uh, well, came out a year or so ago now, right? But <laughs> he has gone through here and ha- added reviewer number one, two, and three to talk about the script of The Last Jedi. (laughs) And it's really excellent. And it's unfortunately spot on. (laughs) I know. I walked around uh, the hallway today reading this to random people, and one of my colleagues is a super Star Wars nerd, as I'm sure one of everyone's colleagues is. And he was, everyone, he's like, that is so true. Yes, I totally agree with that. So in that vein, reviewer number one um, says that there were several major issues by this script by Johnson et al. And we should start out, there were numerous parallels with a previous script by Lucas et al. in 1980 that editors may wish to review for possible plagiarism. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which just started out perfectly. Um, I don't know. They go on and list a bunch of their major concerns. Which one did you feel was was most in line with how you viewed that movie. Well, so I have something to admit. I haven't seen the movie. <gasps> uh, <laughs> that's that's how interested I stayed in the Star Wars series. Oh, my gosh. I think we just lost, like, all five of our <laughs> listeners, John. Oh, my God. Let's We'll edit that out. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if if you if we're talking about Star Trek, but no, so reviewer number one, uh, they had a lot of things that are direct parallels to things that we've all read in paper reviews at one time or another. Uh, one of the interesting ones, because I recently dealt with a, a similar comment, uh, was the entire uh, an entire scene is distracting and adds nothing to the plot. Recommend moving this scene to the director's cut. <laughs> It really was. It was a dumb scene. I don't understand it either. (laughs) Uh, But there are lots of things in here where, you know, the author surprisingly ignored many theories about this topic. uh, (laughs) And the script should not be published without discussion of the origin, motives, and role of this character. Uh uh, Lots of things that are very review sounding. It is. And I will say, since I have seen it, my husband's a massive uh, Star Wars fan. I'm more of a Trekkie, I'll give you that. But... um, (laughs) major concern number five was that luke skywalker is profoundly out of character (laughs) it's so true it's as if the authors didn't bother to read the previous literature describing him as a loyal jedi uh this is the best part and this really is a spoiler alert if you haven't watched it in a year and a half john uh, i don't feel bad about spoilers now okay great uh in addition when luke shuffles off this mortal coil why do his robes stay behind but his prosthetic hand does not (laughs) (laughs) so now this is really funny because we saw an interview with mark hamill and he said that that's what they wanted to do as he disappeared and his robes fluttered they wanted to have his prosthetic hand like flunk down on the rock (laughs) he was sitting on (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't remember if he said they did it as a joke or something like that, um, but they decided it was too cheesy. So I think that's really funny because they actually did address this. <laughs> and then there's also point seven. The script is overly long. It answers virtually none of the key <laughs> questions in the field to any degree of satisfaction. I rarely review a script that uses this many words to say so little. <laughs> oh, I feel like, yeah, you could definitely use that. That's definitely been said many times. <laughs> I, I was going to say, if you think that's harsh, actually go ahead and submit a paper for yep. peer review. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. Um, so review number one also clearly has some minor concerns too. Uh, <laughs> my favorite being, probably your favorite one too, is that there are new ways that the force is employed that are not explained in the methods section. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That was perfect. <laughs> so that's reviewer number one. It's the longest, which there's always one long review on your paper. Exactly. Uh, then reviewer number two, which is a couple paragraphs. This is also relatively typical. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so <laughs> they say, uh, this new script by the Johnson team is a tour de force <laughs> and will take the field in new directions for years to come through Bold experimentation. The team has upended dogma that has persisted for over 30 years. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. <laughs> the and- casino scene is a welcome diversion. <laughs> so directly conflicting with reviewer number one. Oh, beautiful. And so there are several points that directly conflict with reviewer number one, which also happens when you write papers. <laughs> right (laughs) oh yeah so review number two's concern was only a minor one saying that the tactic of using a starship to destroy another starship sets a dangerous precedent (laughs) right and that approach was originally used in star trek nemesis and should be cited (laughs) so reviewer number two that's uh you know review number one will probably be published with major revisions review number two will be published with minor revisions Mm -hmm. right exactly and then uh, reviewer number three, spot on, right? One sentence. I have no helpful comments to offer, but I'm going to reject the script. <laughs> oh, that was really great. Um, yeah, that was, that was excellent. <laughs> yep. Uh, I don't think I've had a review that's one sentence. I've definitely had some that are one paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty great, though. Uh, yes, it is. So there you go. As if scientific review were conducted on Star Wars. <laughs> so if you have your own review of Star Wars, The Last Jedi that you would like to submit for consideration, we would be happy to hear that. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? You can send us that review, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Yeah, you can come hang out on our Slack channel. It is the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 